0: Well, we're continuing our look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and we are slowly making our way through these verses that are so rich in theology and so rich in truth. Uh, last week we looked at, um, we kind of introduced, I kind of introduced the sermon and thinking about just the gospel message. What is the gospel? How would we communicate the gospel? And uh, it's a challenge for us as God's people Um, to do so um, in a way with clarity so that people that are hearing the message that we're sharing would understand um, what the good news of the gospel is, right? Um, I had the opportunity this morning to preach at Providence um, Presbyterian Church down the street for our friend Joey Donahue, and I shared the message from last week, and I reminded them as I reminded you, Um, That in this day and time, we have to be clear on the message and the elements of the gospel because people are trying to change them, right? And so therefore, we must be reminded um, from God's Word and what God calls His gospel, what He defines as the good news. And I want to read for you two examples of why this is necessary before we get into the text. Years ago in youth ministry... Um, we had our students read through the book, What is the Gospel? by Greg Gilbert. Uh, He's a pastor in Louisville, Kentucky. It's a very concise, small, but thorough explanation of the gospel. Um, We went through it for study reasons. We went through it because they're students and they need to know these elements. And in the intro to his book, he lays out a couple examples of of other leaders in churches and their descriptions of the gospel. And I want to read two of them for you. One description of the gospel that Greg Greg Gilbert quotes is this. The good news is that God's face will always be turned towards you, regardless of what you've done, where you've been, or how many mistakes you've made. He loves you and has turned in your direction looking for you. Okay, number two. The radical revolutionary empire of God is here, someone says, advancing by reconciliation and peace, expanding by faith, hope, and love, beginning with the poorest, the weakest, the meekest, and the least. It's time to change your thinking. Everything is about to change. It's time for a new way of life. Now, in that frivol, (laughs) um, it seems that they're trying to say something that is true but it doesn't communicate anything that's occurred in the gospel. It does not tell us any truth that gets us from point A of understanding the bad news to realizing and celebrating the good news. It's just a bunch of sentimentalism, and it's not helpful, only confusing, to a world that needs truth. So last week we talked about In the first uh, two verses of this passage, the need for uh, us to remember the gospel. We talked about what it means to remember uh, the gospel message so that we can fight the battles that God is um, allowing us to fight so that we can be rooted in Christ and all that He um, has accomplished on the cross, that we would be steadfast in the gospel, and finally, that we would rest and find confidence in the sufficiency of what Christ has done so that we can uh, have assurance of our faith in Jesus Christ. Now, the whole reason Paul begins this letter is because these Corinthians have allowed heresy to creep into the church. Some in the uh, Corinthian church... Have been uh, teaching against the resurrection from the dead. Matter of fact, in verse twelve, he kind of lays out the problem. He says, "Now, if Christ is preached, and He has been raised from the dead, how does some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead?" That's Paul's concern. That's him addressing the issue. Verses one through eleven is him shoring up or 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 giving uh, salt. Uh, Solidifying, excuse me, the foundation of the Gospel because this problem arised in Corinth. This problem of rebuke, or rejecting a key tenet of the Gospel message. And so Paul says, hey, remember the Gospel, right? Your testimony of what Christ has done is evidence that the Gospel is real. It's evidence that Christ... Has come, that he has died upon the cross, that he did rise from the grave. You are an example. This is what Christ has done in you, that his victory is is a reality because you are different and you are transformed. And then in verses three and four and five, he's, or excuse me, three and four, he's gonna give us this evidence from the scriptures of the basic elements of the Gospel. Okay? And so today, we are going to look at the good news examined. We're going to examine the elements of the Gospel. So bare bones, you need to know these elements if you are going to rightly share the Gospel. And by the way, these elements are not found in those two quotes that I quoted to you earlier. Alright? The elements of the Gospel. Now, if you ask me the elements of the gospel, if you ask me how I would share the gospel, I would give you these two things that we're going to talk about today, mainly Christ dying upon the cross, His burial and resurrection. I group the burial and resurrection together. I'm going to get to that in a minute or in a few minutes. All right? Two main ideas. Christ died for our sins, was buried and rose from the grave. Okay, those are the two foundational elements. When I share the gospel, I go a little deeper. I start with who God is, His character, His holiness, His justice. Because you have to help under, help people understand the great obstacle that we have standing before a holy God. Right? That we are separated from God as man because of the holiness of God and our rejection of Him. So, as I've said many times here, a good diagram of the gospel, which is laid out in Greg Gilbert's book, is God, man, Christ in response. Okay? Explaining the, the, the holiness and the justice of God, how man has violated and because of those things is separated from him because of sin. and and facing the wrath of God, how Jesus comes in and solves the problems that man has has created for his own glory, and therefore we are called to respond to that message. Alright? But the basic elements that Paul says is simply this. Christ's death, Christ's resurrection. Here's why. Because the problem in the Corinthian church is that they wanted to say that they were Christians and deny one of the two key tenets of the gospel, the resurrection. So Paul lays it out for us. And he's going to tell us, not only these are the elements, but, but by the way, these are the elements that Scripture has attested to up to this point to remind us that this was the purposeful plan that Christ fulfilled in His death and resurrection. So let's look at His death. Paul tells us in verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance that which I also received. Paul giving a testimony of his own faith that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. The Scriptures. I, I like to call this, as many people before me has called it, the death of Christ is the humiliation of Christ. His humiliation. When we think about the death of Christ, we see the full scope of the sinless Son of God giving His life to save undeserving sinners. And we can understand why we might call the death of Christ His humiliation. The Lord of glory stepping out of heaven, putting on human flesh, living among sinners, forsaking the glory and the worship of heaven not discarding His deity, as some may want to say, fully God and fully man dwelling on the earth, and yet living in a realm full of sinfulness, treated like a criminal, treated like an outcast, not worshipped and adored as He was, uh, as he deserves to be worshipped, and being so faithful to the plan of God that He would be willing to enter into a An apex of humiliation by giving His own life for sinners. Why is Christ's death humiliating? Well, we're not talking about Jesus just being embarrassed embarrassed by giving His life on the cross. His humiliation goes beyond just being put to open shame. It goes beyond the beatings. It goes beyond the scourgings. It goes beyond even the pain of crucifixion. His shame obviously seemed visible to the Jews who mocked Him and spit on Him, the soldiers who tortured Him, the torturous device that He was hung on. All these things are steps of His humiliation. Because as we remember, even Christ acknowledged His own glory. Throughout his earthly ministry, he knew what he deserved upon the earth and he was willing to forsake that. He tells us in John 15 or 17, verse 5, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Eternal glory put aside so that he might bring about redemption. This is the beginning of us understanding this humiliation. Putting on human flesh, surrounded by sin, but yet without sin, was still an act of humiliation. Right? Jesus did not have to be sinful to be humiliated by living in a world corrupted with sin. Remember the the passage in, in the Old Testament in Habakkuk? That the presence of evil cannot even dwell in the presence of God? And yet Christ was able to come into the world and live among sinners? Like even the presence of Christ in this world is an act of humiliation because He was literally dwelling among that which was against His very nature of holiness. We saw glimpses of that at the transfiguration when Christ's glory began to shine forth and manifest through Himself, through His bodily form. But the humiliation ultimately comes at His death and what He accomplishes in His death. Now, when you study Christology, which is the study of Christ, His life, His ministry, what He accomplishes, you get to... The death of Christ, and, and you oftentimes think about the application of that death. What did Jesus accomplish through his death? And we could get into a lot of the- theological terms. We could talk about a justification. We could talk about salvation. We could talk about adoption, right? There's all these different things that we could talk about. What we're going to focus on today is what did Jesus do upon his, upon the cross? What did the death accomplished for us. I'm going to focus on two things. His atoning death brought about uh, the ideas of substitution and satisfaction. This is the essence of Christ's death upon the cross. Substitution and satisfaction. We talk about Christ dying for our sins. Not for his sins, therefore dying for our sins means he became the substitute for sin. This means that Jesus stood in our place as our substitute. And what does, what impact does that have for us? Well, today I want us to look at a passage that I think summarizes it well. There's a, there's many in the Bible, but Galatians chapter 3 verse 13 is a good summary verse of the substitutionary atonement of Christ and what He accomplishes, both in satisfaction and in substitution. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, <coughs> Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Paul uses this language curse here because he wants to draw attention to the Old Testament covenant system. And he wants us to understand that as God made a covenant with Israel, the sanctions on that covenant were simple. As you follow through with the covenant, you will receive blessing. As you rebel against the covenant, you will receive cursing. So the word blessing and cursing are diametrically opposed to each other in the Old Testament. Therefore, as we understand it to be, the curse of sin falls upon humanity as a violation of a relationship with God even in the garden. You could call that the the covenant with Adam and God. The Adamic covenant. We talked about this a while back when we looked at the covenant. That the very curse from sin falls upon man. And that this cursing language is the problem that needs to be solved in our world. And remember that throughout the, the Jewish uh, history and Old Testament uh, narratives and, and prophecies and, and poetry... The understanding from a Jewish context was, for you to be blessed meant that you were blessed in the presence of God. For you to be cursed would be far from His presence. So in other words, for example, in the garden, when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, that was a curse upon them because they were separated from the presence of God, therefore they were removed from the blessing of God. That is the curse. R.C. Sproul says, if we want to understand how the Jew assessed blessedness, we get a clue from the the idea that the Jews communicated about blessing in the presence of God. It would be, he says, when the face of God shone upon you, you, when God would lift up the light of His countenance upon you, when the supreme blessedness to the Jew is what we call the beatific, Beatific vision, the vision of God to be able to look God in the face. That was what they understood to be blessing. But Scripture shows us that, that when sin enters the world, that sin brought about a curse. And that curse is reflected throughout the history of Israel as an example of the effects of sin in this world. For example, when we see God uh, ordain or command Israel to build a tabernacle among their camp, he tells them to build a circular camp with with his tabernacle and his presence in the middle of the camp. Right? And what did that signify? Well, it signified that God's presence was dwelling into the midst of the people. But the problem was, is that those people could not enter into the presence of God. Even though His presence was in the midst of them, they could not enter into His presence. There was a separation. Even in that midst of comfort and and reminding of the covenant, the separation existed. So that even in the tabernacle times, when the tents were built, that separation of the Holy of Holies was a picture of the curse of sin and the violation of God's law. As the Jews instituted the sacrificial system, once a year on the Day of Atonement, by God's wisdom, He organized and designed this system so that we could learn about the separation for sin, the curse of, of sinners, and what needs to happen in the process of atonement to rectify that. And so in this process, on the day of atonement, the high priest would take two animals, one a lamb to be slaughtered, and one a goat called the scapegoat to be set free. And that one, the scapegoat, the priest would put his hands on the head of this goat and he would ceremonially transfer the sins of the people upon this goat and he would set the goat free. And where would he set the goat free? Outside the camp for it to roam and, and leave the presence of God, And it was, a, it was a way of signifying that God was doing what the people could not do. He was preparing a way to atone for or rectify the separation and the sins of God's people. Now, all of this is important when we get to Jesus. All of these things point to Christ. Because when Jesus comes into the world, He lives a perfect life... As the sinless son of God, he was not separated from the presence of God. He was God in the flesh. But not only is he God in the flesh, but he has this perfect communion and fellowship with the Father and the Spirit, starting or in existing through all eternity and continuing on in his relationship with the Father particularly and the Spirit in his earthly ministry. And this is important. To see the Trinitarian relationship even as Jesus walks the earth. Luke tells us particularly that when Jesus Christ was baptized, the Spirit descended upon Him. That Jesus performed miracles, it says, by the power of the Holy Spirit. He communicates with the Father His relationship between Father and Son. It is a dynamic, eternal, loving, perfect communion and fellowship between the Godhead. But at the crucifixion, everything changed. Galatians chapter 3 tells us that Jesus became the curse. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, He became sin for us. He took upon Himself the cursed nature of rebellious sinners when He gave His life on the cross. He was humiliated in a myriad of ways in His death to help us see that he was the perfect substitution so that his death would bring about salvation and new life in Christ. Couple examples. His death at the hands of Romans was a humiliation. The Jews would have not killed Jesus the way that the Romans did. If the Jews killed Jesus, if they would have set out to kill Jesus, they would have lined Him up against the wall and they would have stoned Him to death. And they would have done so most likely right then and there when they considered Him a blasphemer. But, they didn't, but God did not ordain that. He, that. he ordained a total humiliation of the Son. And so what did He do? He turned the Son over to the Romans. And the Romans enacted the, the, the crucifixion of criminals. And in doing so, he would they would take these criminals outside the city and put them on a cross. And the act of humiliation was the fact that Jesus even being crucified by the Romans, who were Gentiles, goes against the very nature of the Jews. It was humiliating just to be killed by the the Romans themselves. But in addition to that, the crucifixion and all of its pain and all of its horror, it was more humiliating because it happened outside the city. There the cross is hung outside the city of Jerusalem and the city of Jerusalem was an extension of the presence of God where the temple, of, of, uh, the, the temple was built. And so for Jesus to be crucified outside the city was pointing to the scapegoat who would be let out outside the camp, but it was a symbol of being cursed by God to hang upon a tree and to hang upon a tree outside the city away from the presence of God. Again, a way of demonstrating the humiliation that Christ endured. So in this miraculous and mysterious way, Jesus is both the Lamb that atones for sin and the scapegoat who bears the humiliation and the curse of sin for His people. And so finally, facing the curse of sin as a substitute for sinners... Brought about this singular moment in all of history where Jesus had the wrath of God poured upon him, and in doing so, he was abandoned by the Father as he paid the penalty for sin. He was literally had for the first time a separation in relationship and co- uh, communion and fellowship with the Father by bearing the curse of sin. We understand the Father to have turned away from the Son. That turning away from the sun, that abandonment, we believe is represented in the total darkness that happened with Jesus upon the cross. A supernatural event where the Son became the propitiation for our sins, as the Bible says. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but, we, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is not a word that we use a lot. But what we understand propitiate to mean as a root word is for to propitiate is to win the favor of someone back by doing something for them in order to win that favor. Jesus then, as a substitute and propitiation... He wins back the favor of God for sinners by putting the curse of sin upon himself so that we might be in favor and receive the blessing of God. This is where the substitute and the satisfaction comes in. Because Christ is the substitute and becomes the curse And He satisfies the legal demands of sin that need to be punished by by bearing the penalty of sin and the wrath of God. As the Bible says in Romans chapter 3, God then was just and the justifier of those believers like us who have faith in Jesus. God couldn't just discard sin. Jesus had to also satisfy the legal, justice, judicial requirements that were needed. Therefore, Christ satisfied those by bearing the penalty of sin so that God did not sweep sin under the rug. He placed that penalty, His wrath, upon His Son and therefore is just as God. He retains or continues in His justice. And all these things Paul is pointing back to us with the phrase, according to the Scriptures, so that the Corinthians will understand, folks, this has been in the Bible from the beginning. These ideas have been in the Bible from the beginning. Just look back in time. Just look back in your Scriptures, as Paul says, which would refer to the Old Testament. Look back at stories like Abraham sacrificing his son Isaac on the altar and the Lord providing what? A substitute. Or the death of the Lamb in Egypt that was spread on the doorpost that served as a a salvation to appease the wrath of the angel of the Lord who would pass over those who trusted in God's Word or the great passage of the suffering servant. As we read in Isaiah 53, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore. Our sorrows he carried. We ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions; he was crushed for our iniquities. The chast- chastising or chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. That word. That 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 passage is overflowing with substitution language, with satisfying language to remind us that this key component of Christ's death is about the substitution and the satisfaction that Christ provided upon the cross. Now, do you need to be able to explain all those key concepts when you're explaining the gospel? No, Paul's saying simply this, Christ died for our sins. Understand that. Understand its significance. Rejoice in what Christ has done for us. Find your identity in the substitutionary atonement of Christ so that we may know that when He cried out, it is finished, we no longer have to provide anything necessary to bring about God's pleasant blessing in our lives. God blesses us because of Christ. God's favor is upon us. He he allows His countenance to fall upon us because of Christ. And the most moving thing is that Jesus was willing to sacrifice that blessing and sacrifice that favor and sacrifice that countenance so that we could receive it. So we have the death of Christ or His humiliation. And secondly, we have the burial and the resurrection of Christ, which is His exaltation. This is the point where Paul's argument is going to lead us for the rest of the chapter. He's going to dive headlong and deep and, lo- and wide in the aspects of the resurrection. He's going to look at the resurrection in, in scientific terms, in spiritual terms, in supernatural terms. He's going to do everything He can to prove to the Corinthians that resurrection from the dead is true, that Christ is risen, and that because of that we can have hope. And so He includes the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ as inseparable elements, even though the Corinthians were trying to separate them. But the exaltation of Christ begins not at His resurrection. Officially it's His resurrection, but the precursor to His full exaltation and victory over sin was actually His burial. His burial was a way for God the Father to exalt His Son in the beginning stages of exaltation. Jesus was crucified as a criminal. And He was crucified as a criminal by the Romans. And the Romans had a trash heap located outside the city called Gehenna that burned with fire that never ended in Jesus' words. Where the fire quencheth not... As Jesus described. And it's where they would take all the city refuse and trash and they would burn it. And that's where they put the bodies of criminals after they crucified them. That's the destination. That's the reservation that Jesus had by the Roman, for the Roman's sake. If God did not press upon the heart of Pontius Pilate to allow Mary, the mother of Jesus, to take the body of Christ down from the cross, Well, she didn't take it down from the cross, but they took it down from the cross and she received it and they put him in a tomb that belonged to Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph was a rich man. Joseph was allowing Jesus to be buried in a family tomb. And this burial then is a way by which Jesus was honored, honored in Jewish custom honored with the ceremonial spices and and linens being wrapped and being placed in a tomb. All of these things to focus on the fact that Christ was exalting Jesus even in these moments. And we know that He was in the grave on Friday, He was in the grave on Saturday, and, and He was in the grave for a moment on Sunday. So that on the third day, we say Christ rose from the grave. They would count thir- uh, they would, not Thursday. They would count Friday, and they would count Sunday as days, because he was in the tomb on those days. But it was in on that Sunday, in the early morning of the of Sunday, that Christ would rise victoriously from the grave, and in that he would begin a greater and more public exaltation as King and as Lord. Again, R.C. Sproul, in his book, Who is Jesus?, describes the resurrection this way. He says, quote, With cataclytic power, God rolled the stone away and unleashed this wave of creative energy of life, infusing it once more into the still body of Christ. Jesus' heart began to beat, pumping glorified blood through His glorified arteries, sending glorified power to the muscles atrophied by death. The grave clothes could not bind Him as He rose to His feet and He quit the crypt. In an instant, the mortal became immortal and death was swallowed up by victory. We know the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the testimony of God's great power and victory over sin. It recognizes that the sacrifice of, cro- of the cross and the redemptive work of Jesus was accepted. It, it worked. It was. It was the the thumbs up from from God that that all that Christ accomplished was satisfied. That no, nothing else would be needed. It was a demonstration. That God did what was necessary through His Son to bring about redemption. It literally personified or signified the end of Jesus' statement, it is finished. It was finished. The resurrection proves it was finished. And every Gospel writer gives us evidence of the resurrection. The resurrection, and by and, and may I clarify, the bodily resurrection. We'll get into this more, and uh, when I get back from my trip from India. But we want to stress the bodily resurrection of Christ, that He comes back in a glorified body, not in a spirit, not in the body He had before. It was a glorified body. A body that that Paul will make very clear as the first fruits of what we will experience when we too are resurrected. And this resurrected body of Jesus, we will read throughout this chapter, was unique to the world. It defied natural law because it was a supernatural event that produced a supernatural body. We read in the Gospels that Jesus could eat in this glorified state and yet could appear and disappear with ease. It's fascinating to think about how different our bodies will be as Christians when we are blessed with the glorified bodies at the coming of Christ. And we have to understand that the significance of the resurrection was so powerful that even the enemies of Christ scrambled to try to find a way to cover up the resurrection. Which also proves its reality and its truthfulness. They began to make up lies and and try to bribe the guards to say different things, to to try to skirt around the reality that Jesus had truly risen from the grave. But they couldn't stop the flow. They couldn't stop the flood of of rejoicing and joy. They couldn't stop the supernatural appearances of Christ, which uh, which are other evidences of the truth and the reality of the resurrection. All of these things crescendo to the exaltation of Christ, of His glory and His majesty that He deserved, that He finally receives at His resurrection. But the reality of the cross and the resurrection actually go all the way back to the Garden of Eden when the promise of God to Adam and Eve that their offspring would crush them. That victorious stomping of the neck occurred when God raised His Son from the dead and established a way moving forward for all of us who trust in Christ to also be raised both spiritually and eternally to our resurrected state. Now we'll spend a great more deal of time looking at that in the future. But notice again Paul's statement that these things happened according to the Scriptures. Like bookends to the Gospel message, Christ died according to the Scriptures and that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Paul wants to solidify the evidence that is needed. The first evidence our testimony of Christ. You and I and our faith in Christ and the transforming work that He accomplished is evidence that Jesus is alive. Number two, throughout the Old Testament Scriptures, it was foretold this would happen. This was literally the fulfillment of prophecies that were made. Starting at the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3, the promises made to Abraham that his offspring would be a blessing to all nations foreshadowed in in situations um, like Jonah and the whale, which or the big fish, which Jesus looks back to in His earthly ministry and says, like Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days, so I too, or so the Son of Man too, will rise from the earth in three days. Even Old Testament passages like Psalm 16, verse 9 and 10, speak of the resurrection. Therefore my heart is glad, David says, and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo corruption. Or chapter 53 of Isaiah again. Verses 10 and 11 this time. That the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days. Well, if the Lord was crushing the suffering servant, how would the suffering servant see his offspring and prolong his days, if not by the good pleasure of the Lord and the resurrection that came? All these things point to the exaltation of Christ in His resurrection. All of these things point to what Christ told his disciples in Matthew 20. He told them to go to a mountain outside of Jerusalem. And he told them that he would be raised, or excuse me, he told them to go to the mountain of Jerusalem right before his ascension. And he told them in that statement all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So if we're talking about the exaltation of Christ, you could say then that it began at His burial, it then stepped even forward in a greater way to His resurrection, but finally, in this phase of His life, we could include the ascension in His exaltation. Because it was in the ascension that Christ leaves this earth, it, it literally becomes the apex, the final step of His exaltation as Christ and King because the Bible tells us what that He goes and He sits at the right hand of the Father. The full coronation of the King, which started as the Lord was mounted on the donkey and traveling into the city of Jerusalem that was shadowed in the, the babe in the manger, that was worshipped by the wise men and by the angels and by the shepherds, but finally was brought to fulfillment when Christ rises from this world and sits at the right hand of the Father. And it was there that Jesus was referring to where all authority had been given to Him in heaven and on earth. Now again, in describing the Gospel, we want to focus on the key elements. We don't want to get lost in all the details, but we want people to understand the victory that we have in the exaltation of Christ, most particularly in the resurrection. And I've told you guys my testimony, I've reminded you that it was the resurrection of Christ that that, that I studied, that I had to come to understand so that my faith would be real as a college student in 2000-2001. It was there that I had to realize that if Christ is risen, that He truly is King. And if He's truly King, then He's worthy to be worshipped. And it only became later that I began to understand the ascension and the the value and the purpose of Christ uh, rising from this earth and being seated at the right hand of God, showing us that He is truly the one who rules and reigns over all things. And I would encourage you to consider adding the ascension to such a gospel presentation. And here's why. Because when you get down to it, people need to understand that they are subjects under the authority of King Jesus. And if you're going to include the ascension as part of the exaltation of Christ, then it points them then to the idea that Christ is ruling and reigning over all things right now. Are you subjected to Him? Are you following Him? Are you submitting to His Lordship as King over all? To me, that sounds like a good way to end a gospel presentation and conversation. But folks, these truths are meant for us to have hope. They are meant for us to be carried forward away from heretical ideas that were stirring up in the Corinthian church and could easily stir up in our church today. Over the years, throughout the ages... You can read Christian history and see such foundational tenets of the Christian faith are constantly attacked by Satan and the philosophies of this world. Even this week at our Bible study, we talked about alternative Gospels that exist today. We talked about the social Gospel. How about the prosperity Gospel? Does the curse against sin sound like God wants you to be happy? It's the exact opposite. But that's the prosperity gospel that is being promoted in our world today. And we've got to be able to stand firm against that. We've got to be able to find our hope and our identity in the finished work of Christ's death and resurrection. So as I said last week, we preach the gospel to ourselves to remind us who we belong to as believers in Jesus Christ. And finally... It reminds us that if we don't follow Christ, if you don't follow Christ, if you don't believe in Him, then you need to understand the wrath of God is upon you. The wrath of God and His judgment has not been appeased for your sin if you have not believed. And therefore, you must turn from your sin and put your faith fully and completely in Christ as your only way of escape. He is your only way of escape. And you do not want to bear the wrath of God for all eternity. So friend, I would encourage you, I would plead with you to believe. To believe in Him. Let's pray. Father, thank You for these beautiful elements of the Gospel. God, we pray You would use them to solidify our faith or lead us to faith in Christ alone. Help us, Lord, to worship Him as the exalted King of all, who is humiliated above all things so that we might be saved. May it lead us to a deeper longing and love.